Keegan and I will be doing the Bible reading this morning. So our passage today is from Isaiah chapter 36. So before I begin, um, would everyone like to please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we are able to gather together today as your church. I thank you for your word, Lord, and all that you reveal to us through it. And I thank you that we are able to read it so freely. I pray that as we, re we read from Isaiah now, Lord, that you would open our ears and our hearts, and you would help us to be receptive to your word. In your name I pray. Amen. Isaiah 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the Lorderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to him, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you were depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who like you will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says, do not let Hezekiah deceive you he cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of corn and new wine a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath, the, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad, 
Where are the gods of Sepavium? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Thank you, Tegan, for that Bible reading. Oh, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all. Uh, it's never too uh, much to take for granted what it is, a blessing to be meeting together in person again. So it's just wonderful to be able to see you guys in, uh, face-to-face yet again. Uh, just a warning. This is, I'm going to fly through uh, these couple of chapters, so 36, 37. I'm going to be flying through, and I'm going to be touching a little bit Um, on chapter 39 as well. So please keep your Bibles open uh, so you can stay along, uh, stay on track with me as well as we go. I'm just going to quickly pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that for the last 36 chapters or so, you have been showing us who we are, where we stand before you. You've shown us your great holiness that none can compare to. And you've shown us just the big gap between where we are and our ability to be in your presence because of your holiness, because we are rebellious. And so, Lord, today, as we see from chapters 36 to 37, this amazing event take place. Father, please help us to wonder and to worship you all the more as we see this wonderful deliverance of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. A young family is huddled together in their dark room. Uh, They're all hungry, uh, but they remember the government officials telling them to eat as little as possible each day, just enough to survive for another day. Well, not that it matters anyway, because as the family peer into their near-empty clay pot, uh, despite their careful rationing, they're pretty much out of food. They've been stuck within their city walls for so long now. There's a big army camped outside their city, cutting off access to the world, cut off from their fields and their fruit trees and the vineyards, and they could only dream of what it was like to eat fresh produce again. But wait, there's there's some commotion outside. They're calling our officials out. And as this family look out their window, half with curiosity, but also half with dread, they see their leaders ride out to meet them. But then they watch, and their hearts sink. Oh no, says Dad. They're standing at our aqueduct, our last source of fresh water into our city. Now, we won't have any water to drink, they think. I really hope that our officials know what they're doing. I really hope that they can negotiate a way out for us so that we won't have to die a horrific death, they think to themselves. So this is where God's people find themselves as we come to chapter 36. And we've actually been here before. 
Just like Isaiah chapter 7 that we covered a few weeks ago, Judah has been invaded. Jerusalem, the capital, is the last remaining stronghold yet to be captured. And all of the remaining people of God, all of them, are holed up in this little city, within the city walls, as the unstoppable army of their enemy surrounds the city. And again, just like chapter 7, the aqueduct, the city's sole source of water, is highlighted as being at risk. You cut that off, then what else are you going to do? The only difference this time is that instead of King Ahaz sitting on the throne, it's his son, King Hezekiah. Instead of Syria and Ephraim coming to destroy the city, now it's Assyria. And so what's going to be different this time? How will King Hezekiah fare in such a similar situation? Well, first up, this commander of the Assyrian army, he's too impatient to slowly starve the people in the city to death. And so he summons these officials of Jerusalem to come and meet him at the water source, right? a not-so-subtle threat, to persuade them to surrender peacefully. Why waste the lives of my men when you can just come out? You know, you know what's going to happen. And the Assyrian, com- Assyrian commander is very logical here, actually. And he asks, on what are you basing your confidence on? Right? Verse 4, what is your end game? As your people slowly starve inside the city, what are you hoping will save you? And so one by one, he lays out why each of their options, each of their hopes for survival are actually pointless, or at least in his eyes. At first, you might think that you can save yourselves. You say you have counsel, you have military might. Maybe they've sort of made claims that they're actually hiding a big powerful army behind the city walls. But if so, the commander's calling the bluff. They wouldn't be in this situation if they had wisdom or military might. They are empty words. And so what what other option is there? Maybe you can trust in your alliances, right? Uh, Last week we saw from Pastor Iggy that just when the looming threat of Assyria came, the people of Judah tried to put their trust in Egypt, reaching out to them for help. They've got horses, right? They've got chariots. They can help us. But as we've seen last week, we've seen how stupid it was for Judah to put their trust in Egypt. And what's telling is that even the enemy of God's people could see that Egypt could not be relied on for help. And so at this point, Assyria is completely on point here, aren't they? Uh, This commander is right, neither trusting in their own power or plans, nor trusting in their alliances with other nations is going to do them any good. Assyria is completely right. Well, what about option three? Verse seven. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Now, first of all, clearly this command has got some facts wrong here. Because he doesn't realize that what Hezekiah actually did was to remove the altars of the false gods, the altars that didn't belong to Yahweh, God. But even so, can you hear what the commander is implying? Look, you're now worshipping your God in your precious temple in Jerusalem, but look what good that has done you. Look around you. You're surrounded by my mighty army. Your God couldn't stop me from coming. And so he can't save you 
either from me. And so we'll come back to this option three a bit later on as the commander later lays out why he thinks Yahweh cannot save him. But now, after trying to show why Jerusalem has no one to turn to for help, he gives them this offer. But here, what sounds like a generous offer of uh, military power and horses is actually just another way to humiliate Judah. Come bargain with us as if you've got anything to offer us. Even if we give you 2,000 horses, you won't even be able to supply enough able-bodied men to ride them. So how can you even face off the, the smallest, the weakest, the most pathetic of my master's army? But then even more boldly, the commander suggests that Yahweh, the God of Jerusalem himself, has told him to come and destroy Jerusalem. Now, clearly, the commander is just using the name of God as a propaganda tool. He's making this up to discourage his enemy, to, to make them surrender. And uh, apparently this was a very common tactic used in warfare in ancient times. And yet, this commander has a knack for ironically being spot on when it comes to what is actually happening behind the scenes, even if he's not aware of it. In previous weeks, we saw already that God foretold that Assyria would be right here in Jerusalem because of Ahaz's actions. And so, what has Jerusalem's officials have to say about all this? Are they going to respond with resounding rebuke? Are they going to point out the flaws and the holes in the commander's speech? Nope. Instead, in verse 11, they ask, uh, can, you please stop our, can you please stop speaking our language? Shush, don't, don't speak too loud. The people will hear. Don't use our language. Speak in Aramaic. We can understand Aramaic. That's not really a confidence-inspiring response, is it, that you want your leaders to give? And so, as you might have expected, the commander does exactly the opposite. Not only do they continue speaking in Hebrew, but now he calls out loudly so that everyone can hear. And here is where he really tries to undermine God's power. He gives a two-pronged approach, a two-pronged assault on Jerusalem's dependence on God. First, Assyria claims that only Assyria is able to give them what they want from God. This is what we will give you if you make peace and come out. I'm going to bring you to your own land, a land where you can eat from your own fruit tree and drink from your own vine, you dig your own cisterns. I will take you to a rich and abundant land. Now just put yourselves in the, in the situation in the shoes of the people inside the walls. That sounds good, doesn't it? You've been stuck behind these walls, fearing for what you're going to eat. You've never tasted fresh produce for so long. Anything is better than the situation we're in now, right? That is a nice picture. But more than that, what does this language that the commander is using evoke? It sounds like he's offering an escape from the misery of Jerusalem as if it's a new exodus. Right? He's picturing a land flowing with milk and honey again. He is saying, I can bring you to a new promised land just as God took you to your promised land now from slavery in Egypt. And so the commander is effectively saying, what you hope your God to do once again as he did in the past, I can actually give to you. I'm the one who actually has power to do that. 
Now, of course, none of that is true. If they came out, uh, the history, history will tell us that Assyria will simply deport them and scatter them throughout the empire, make them slaves, and they will scatter them so much that they can no longer hold on to their identity as God's people anymore. But he continues with a second point of attack. And that is, people of Judah, look at the empirical evidence. We have a proven track record of being an effective God killer. Look at the path of destruction behind us. Look at the trail of smoke. Where were all the gods of those nations? Hamath, Arpad, Sephavayim, Samaria. Which one of their gods could stop us? And so what makes you think that your God will be any different? Why trust in Yahweh, your God, when I can give you anything you want? Why trust in the Lord when it's clear that your God will be unable to save just like all the other gods of our defeated enemies? It's quite a challenging situation that people are in, aren't they? But now that this message finally reaches the king himself, King Hezekiah, And so how will he respond? And if you've been reading Hezekiah for the first time up to this point, then he does something completely unexpected. Because unlike Ahaz, unlike the people of Jerusalem, King Ahaz first turns to God. Hezekiah humbly, with torn clothes, the dress of a mourner, he comes humbly and he goes straight to the temple of God. He sends his officials to Isaiah, God's prophet. Finally, finally, we see a king who instead of turning to his own planning, instead of trying to fix things himself, he runs to God. Finally, we see a response, not of hard-heartedly refusing to listen to the words of God through his prophet Isaiah, but now he goes to Isaiah and seeks God's counsel. And let's see what Hezekiah says to Isaiah. He first describes the situation that they're in. And it's one of utter devastation and tragedy. It's like when a child is due to be born and there's no strength to deliver them. Just picturing that scenario, it's it's gut-wrenching, right? But the language here goes beyond the, the emotional power of that image, as strong as that is. Because this language of being in labor has been used by God in earlier, in in Isaiah chapter 26, Judah's efforts to save themselves through human plans was described as exerting great effort in labor. But when Judah did that, by her own strength, all that did was push out wind. It's fruitless, it's humiliating, it's, it's all in vain. And now Hezekiah comes to God, humbly acknowledging his hopeless situation before God. There is no strength left in Jerusalem. No more clever plans, no more political machinations. Only you can save us, O God. But secondly, notice what Hezekiah is most concerned about here. Yes, he is asking for the deliverance of the city, for the remnant that is all that remains of God's people. But in verse 4, he gets to the heart of why this is all so distressing. The living God has been ridiculed. God's name has been blasphemed, made light of. Because this siege and this speech against Jerusalem isn't just another piece of propaganda in another human military campaign. At the heart of it, it's an attack on God. 
the blasphemy of God's name as the commander utters falsehoods about God as he flippantly uses God's name to further his own success. It's an attack on God's sovereignty as he calls on God's people to think that their God, the Holy One of Israel, is powerless to save them. And so Hezekiah asked God to rebuke them. He is offended by the insult to his God's name. And God responds. He responds with some familiar words. Verse 6, do not be afraid. It's the same assurance that God gave to King Ahaz before him. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Why not? Because God promises that this commander will go back to his own country and die there. And the next line is really, really telling. Because so far you've got so many long speeches by this commander with his clever rhetoric, luring people with both stick and carrot, with his fancy scheming. And then we read verse 8. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. That's all there is to it. There's no need to elaborate. Unlike the long-winded and the many boasts and plans of Assyria, God makes a promise and it happens. That's it. Uh, now, just a, a note from this point onwards, I'm really going to be flying now. I'll be flying through this section because there's so much to learn from King Hezekiah and God's response as well. Uh, but we'll actually be spending a lot of time digging into this in our Bible studies, in life groups. So I'll, I'll leave this to our life groups. But for the rest of the chapter, we get two rounds of a serious threat again, another round. Uh, Hezekiah's response and then God's verdict on the matter again. And with the commander presumably dead now, now Sennacherib, the king of Assyria himself, personally addresses Hezekiah. But it's the same old message. Look at the long list of nations that these gods were helpless to save against my mighty power. And so your God won't save you. And then once again, we see Hezekiah go straight to the temple and he spreads out a serious message before God. And he humbly says, I'm handing the situation over to you. I can't do anything about this threat. I have no power against Sennacherib. Only you, Lord, can defend your name. But hear how Hezekiah brings a serious claims to God. Hezekiah acknowledges the destruction of the Syrians and the powerlessness of the other nations' gods. Because Assyria was absolutely right about that, no question. But what Assyria didn't get was, was that he wasn't triumphant because he was more powerful than these other powerful gods, but rather he was triumphant because they were actually powerless against him because they had no power, because they were man-made images fashioned out of wood and stone. Hezekiah gets this. And so once again, Hezekiah calls on God to show his power. Deliver us, save us, so that all the kingdoms might know that you are the only God. Make it abundantly clear that in fact you are the one who has any power at all. And this time, God delivers his verdict and sentence for the nation of Assyria. The mocker will become the one mocked. And soon it will be little insignificant Jerusalem who will be taunting this great empire of Assyria. 
See, just like all the nations around at the time, Assyria was guilty of pride. We saw that two weeks ago. But for Assyria, they have taken their pride to an all-new level. If you read through these claims that Assyria makes for herself and compare that with what we read with Isaiah, we know that these descriptions aren't simply just exaggerated boasts, but they actually claim for themselves what God is doing. Because it is God who judges the nations, not Assyria. But in her delusions, she thinks that it's all her power. And so God is going to send Assyria back to where she came from. But then God turns to Hezekiah. And again, God offers the king a sign, just like he did to Ahaz. And God speaks of a restoration of the remnant so swift and so total that within three short years, not only will they be able to come out of the city walls, not only will they regain all their fields and vineyards, a return to normal life, but they'll be enjoying the fruit from their vineyards in three short years. They'll be back enjoying their promised land. And as you would have guessed by now, the aftermath is short and brief. That very night, God's messengers God's messenger comes to put 185,000 in the Assyrian camp dead. In the morning, there are dead bodies everywhere. And so Sennacherib goes home. That's it. Now, remember last week how God promised that he will save his people in, under the threat of Assyria, but it will be so obvious that it will not be by human hand. And it can't get any more obvious than this, can it? Right? This rescue had nothing to do with the power of Egypt. This rescue had nothing to do with the ingenuity of Hezekiah's planning or power. The army was simply there one day and gone the next. And even the king, Sennacherib, dies in a humiliating way. See, while Hezekiah is delivered from his enemy, when he goes to Yahweh, the temp his, Yahweh's temple for help, what happens to Sennacherib? Sennacherib goes to his temple, his God's temple, and when he's there, he's put to death by his own family. Just a nice little contrast there for you, Sennacherib. You who tried to mock the God of Hezekiah. And so taking a, a step back here, what, what do we see? First we see, finally, Hezekiah is the one that we've been waiting for for so long. And with all the promises that we've seen so far from the book of Isaiah, we can begin to see the significance of what's transpired here, right? A young child has grown up who in his lifetime saw Judah's enemies, Ephraim and Syria, destroyed before he grew up. He chooses right over wrong, unlike his father Ahaz. This child grows up to be a Davidic king. And his faith results in peace in the salvation of the remnant of God's people, keeping alive both God's promises to King David, but also Abraham before him. And so this is it, right? You might think the book of Isaiah should end here, logically speaking, with so many of these anticipated promises fulfilled, with the enemy of God's people defeated, and a righteous king finally seated on the throne. This is just a wonderful picture of God being faithful to his promise to be with his people, to God with us. This picture of what godly kingship looks like and what it produces for God's people. Until you read chapter 39. In chapter 39, we get a glimpse 
of a guest from a faraway land visiting Hezekiah. And the king gladly shows him around and he tries to impress him with all his stuff in his armory, in his storehouses, all his stuff in his palace. Doesn't seem like a particularly noteworthy thing. Why, why, why include this at all? Until we remember what Judah had been guilty of for all this time. Because Judah and the other kings were guilty of putting their trust in the alliances around them, in the nations around them, to, to politically secure their future without trusting in God. And so here is Hezekiah, the supposed righteous king, trying to impress his guests. And in this section, there's something missing that we should all notice. In this section, there is no mentioning of God. Why should you ally with us? Why should you ally with Judah? Oh, never mind the God who miraculously saves. Never mind that we have the God of the whole world who is actually our God. Ally with me because look at all my impressive stuff. And worse still, this guest is none other than a member of the royal family of Babylon. Babylon, who would soon come to finish off what Assyria started. Jerusalem will fall and all her wealth plundered. And it leaves us with God's people heading off into exile under Babylonian captivity. And so now, where does that leave us? In chapter 39, with a brief eight verses, this glorious, triumphant victory and climax of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is snatched away from us. That leaves us with the same problem that we started with in Isaiah chapter 1. And again, I'm just going to mention that in our life groups, we'll consider this brief moment in history where Hezekiah provides this really uh, helpful example and model for us to, to follow even today as we are shown what trusting in God looks like in adversity. There's so much for, for us to learn there. But for today, I just want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the 99.9% of those God's people in the story. And that is... Let us put ourselves in the shoes of the ordinary people stuck within the city walls. What, what, what would have been it like for them? Listening to the threats, the mockery of the Assyrians, it'd be easy to feel intimidated, wouldn't it? I'm sure they would have muttered to themselves, how is Hezekiah going to save us from this terrible solution, ter situation? And then they would have seen just how good it is when the king that they follow when the king himself follows God, one who knows right and wrong, who leads his people, who represents his people to make good God-honoring choices. A king who's trusting God won't, in a moment of panic, run to the closest ally, run to the most flashy human solution, but is steadfast, is committed to trusting in God to save. And so even though we see that it is ultimately God that saves, when God's people live under God's good king, trusting in God, God's king actually saves his people. And so even though our story today is tainted by Hezekiah's lack of faith, for a brief moment, for a brief taste, we get to taste how wonderful it is to be under a good king. What's that got to do with us? Because you might be thinking, hold on a second, we don't have a king over us. What are you talking about? 
I'm the boss of my own life. We like to believe that we are the sole determiners of our own destiny, right? And our individualistic society prides itself on the freedom to do and to be whatever we put our minds to do. But even in the last couple of years, we've just seen that to be untrue, right? Just look at the situation we're in now. This comparative, comparative freedom that we've had since the COVID pandemic began. Did we choose that? Did, is it our choices that led, led to this? I mean, yes, we all do our part, right? We listen to the government's advice to stay home if needed, to socially distance, to wear masks. And I'm sure, I'm pretty sure actually, the last Indro outbreak was limited because of the high compliance of uh, face mask wearing and people actually staying home. Yes, we do have some influence, but as a whole, around the world and in Australia even, in different states, we've seen that it is almost all the success or failure to contain COVID, well, it just comes down to the decisions of a select few in a government. Our freedoms that we enjoy now was hardly influenced by our own individual choices. And so our destiny, our destiny so to speak, was determined by the decisions of those ruling over us. We are all at the whim of a ruling power one way or another. But the thing we need to realize is that just like the good rule of Hezekiah that we see here, we can't bank on a good government to last forever or even last enough for our lifetime. And so we need to look for a solution, a permanent one. And of course, the good news is that we have that solution already, right? Because another has come already that matches all of God's promises even better than King Hezekiah. Because who else was born of the line of David? Who else can say that they were born of a virgin in the truest sense of that word? Who can actually identify as the everlasting father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace? Which king perfectly listens to God when all other leaders don't? Who else would obey God to the point of sacrificing himself on the cross for his own people? And what other king leads to the salvation of God's people all over the world? Well, there's none other than Jesus, of course. Jesus, who actually fulfills all this criteria. And best of all, best of all, this king has overcome death itself. Because we know of his resurrection, because we know he now reigns as king at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Unlike all the other human kingdoms that we've seen rise and fall, Jesus' rule, because he has conquered death, will never end. And so let us hear the commander's taunts at the beginning of the passage. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? This is a question for both those of us who don't yet follow Jesus as king, but also for us who do. Because whether we know it or not, there is a battle ongoing all around us. And I'm not talking about COVID. But I'm talking about a battle of all these different voices claiming to be sources of true security, all vying for our attention and confidence. What is that thing that you hear the loudest, that you say you must cling on to, as the most important thing that will keep you safe if, it's, if a crisis comes. That that is the thing that is going to get you out of trouble every single time. 
What is the thing that you don't yet possess, but promises that if you worked hard enough, you'll be set for life? Then you'll be truly living the good life. Just have a think about that. What is that voice that you keep hearing, you want to hear? What is it for you? But time after time, history has shown us that the thing that we humans think guarantee our security, every single time we are humiliated for ever thinking that way. Whether it be the ingenuity of human beings thinking that the Titanic is unsinkable, or the assumption that investment properties in the US can never go bad prior to 2007, there is just no rock-solid security. Why? Because as much as we like to treat them as so, these things are not gods. They are man-made, built with our own hands. They can never be depended on to rescue us. And if you're here today with us and you don't yet call Jesus your king, then I hope I've just given you a taste of how good it is when you follow a good king. That there is a king out there reigning right now over us that will never disappoint you and can bring ultimate security and can bring us to true blessing, and that is life, true life, everlasting life with God our Father. And if you are a Christian, if you do follow Jesus, then my hope and prayer is that Hezekiah's story today has just deepened your trust and dependence on that far greater king that we follow. Because look at the example of Hezekiah. Put yourselves in the position of one of those people stuck quaking in their boots within the city walls. Will you experience, will you feel that incredible excitement and joy of celebration, witnessing God's miracle that he has given through his king who is faithful to him? Except what we are joyful of, what we are witnessing isn't a heap of dead bodies of our enemies, but that we know that the weight of sin, the fear of judgment has been lifted from our shoulders. Rejoice, knowing that our king that we follow will lead us not just prosperity that we see in a limited sense in our world now, but prosperity found in being in perfect relationship with God, enjoying God for all eternity. How good is that? And so when we are faced with the question that Jerusalem was faced with, On what are you basing this confidence of yours? I pray that we can all say without hesitation, our confidence is in our King who trusts God to the point of laying down his life for us. Our confidence is in our King who has reigned, who is reigning forever because he has defeated death. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Hezekiah that we've seen today just gives us this brief glimpse of what a good human king under human circumstances can do when they trust in you. And Lord, we pray that Hezekiah's example would help us to really appreciate King Jesus all the more in our lives. That we would see that there is nothing to fear when we follow Jesus, that there is no, nothing that puts us in danger because you have secured our eternity, because you have given us a king that follows you perfectly and represents us as our perfect king. And so, Lord, will you transform us day by day to keep trusting in that king and to have confidence in our future 
because we follow the perfect king. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.